This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day. You guys loved part one of my conversation with author Kathleen Stock. And so this is part two. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Without further ado, here again is Kathleen Stock. When it comes to children, I just cannot believe that the psychological and psychiatric profession have I don't know what has happened to them. I really don't know what has happened to them because these are not stupid people and they're not, you would think, particularly conservative. But when it comes to this issue, I've got books which say, you know, a, a child's gender identity emerges around the age of three. Right. And and I've, I've seen videos of um, gender identity therapists talking about looking for evidence in children and like maybe the boy picks up a hair clip or you know the girl moves towards the action man and these are signs of something inside them it's just it's just incredible it's strange and um, i'm not totally sure to answer your question why in this segment of science it seems like many academics and doctors and scientists are so anti-scientific um But I I don't know why we can't allow just kids to be kids. I think about when I was um, when I was in preschool, the only thing that I would allow my mom to put me in was jeans and a white T-shirt. I did not want to wear a dress. I didn't want to wear bows. That embarrassed me. Um, and I, you know, I bought, I, my parents were a little concerned there for a while because I only wanted to read books about snakes and I really liked worms. I mean, it was just me being a kid. I had two older brothers at the same time. I had a boyfriend from the time that I was in preschool. I was just being who I was. And there was never a thought in my parents' mind or in my mind that maybe she should be the other gender. And I just wonder if I had been the same way in this era, would there have been teachers and administrators and social workers and pediatricians in my life pushing me into starting a plan of of hormone blockers and how drastically that would have changed my life for the worst. And you just have to think about how many victims of that um, are there right now. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And one of the kind of powerful aspects of the um, pushback in Britain has been lesbians in particular and gay men um, who, as children, strongly identified with the opposite sex, maybe called themselves boys' names, um, insisted. I mean, I know several of my friends as children insisted on being called boys' names. They didn't want to like pee sitting down. You know, they they really, really identified with boys and um, they were they played with boys and that's you know was all at the time considered so unworrying so you know just fine um and it would just be very different for some families not every family like we need to exaggerate this is not like going on everywhere but it is going on and um the worrying thing is that like i say parents who feel a bit uncomfortable with that can have now have a narrative that they can just quickly turn to they have internet chat groups that can help them like buy, you know, like 
packers for um, trans identified girls. So, you know, there's just a whole bunch of paraphernalia now you can buy or um, books you can read to kind of support this fantasy that you're going to get a daughter at the end of it when you started with a son or vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know I what think, to say about it. <laughs> I think parents are scared, too, because there's been cases in America and Canada and the UK of parents refusing to affirm the gender identity of their child and their child being um, taken away from them temporarily. Sometimes, um, you know, there, there are worse cases of that. And parents are scared because they love their child and they want to do yeah. what's best for their I child. Know. And some parents just don't know any better. And there's some, in some cases, scared of the state. And so I understand an awful situation. It is. I mean, really, we have to go to the powerful people in this. We have to go to the LGBT lobby groups, which have lots of money. We have to go to educators. We have to go to academics who are just waving this through. And we have to go to the um, psychiatric and psychological professional associations who have all signed, well, in Britain, they've signed a memorandum of understanding that they will only affirm gender identity. And there's a similar kind of understanding, I think, in place in America. So it's very hard to find a therapist who could talk you through this stuff, say, hang on a minute, maybe, maybe you just maybe there's another narrative here, you know, maybe we should wait and see what happens. Because there is evidence that um, if you wait, most kids will desist from Mm thinking that they're the opposite sex, but you have to give it time. You can't leap into anything. Now, of course, for some very small number of people, being trans might be the right thing to do, but I think it's got to be an adult decision after a quite a lot of talking and thinking rather than something that we would let a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old do. Yeah, but you can kind of see the logic behind some trans activists. If you truly believe that gender identity is just as real or if not more real than biological sex, if you believe that it's the same as sexual orientation and that sexual orientation is something that you're born with, um, then you could see the logic of someone saying, well, why shouldn't we allow 11-year-old or 12-year-old to be who they really are? And I know that you would disagree with that conflation, but you could see how someone who conflates yeah. those, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation, they, if they think that, okay, any kind of therapy is, quote, conversion therapy, and if they oppose conversion mm-hmm. therapy for gay kids, then that mm-hmm. means that they oppose any kind of quote, conversion therapy for trans kids. And so that conflation, I think, also is part of the Mm -hmm. issue is that they lump it all together and they say, well, no, we just have to affirm. Um, And that's the most healthy path that we can take. Yeah. I mean, that conflation that happens in the Equality Act, your Equality Act, it happens um, in the Yoga Kyata principles, which were in 2003 and which have influenced all sorts of international bodies, legislation, they put sexual orientation and gender identity together in the same sentence, in the same breath, and they say both are fundamental aspects of your, um, of you, and uh, no one should be forced to suppress them or pressure to change them. But they're very different things. I mean, gender, in my view, gender identity is not what makes you trans or not. What makes you trans is is a behavior or a choice to modify your body or to take hormones or to dress a certain way or to start even just announcing to the world or a certain way. It's not a thing inside you that's like always been there bursting to come out. Just in the same way, actually, sexual orientation is expressed through behavior, like who you're attracted to and who you date and who you marry and who you sleep with and so on. So um, I 
it's not that I don't think, I do think trans people should be protected in law. They certainly shouldn't be fired for being trans. They certainly should face any kind of discrimination or harassment for being trans. But that's not to say that gender identity is what makes them trans or what makes it worth protecting them. So it's, I would like to separate out these two issues and say, let's think about what um, protections, legal protections and social protections we need for trans people. Let's get gender identity as this concept, which is just a very bad concept, out, out of the discussion and do it some other way. Okay, so for all of you grillers out there, for everyone who likes to cook out or making, maybe you're uh, planning a barbecue for the 4th of July, you have to get your meat from Good Ranchers. I'm not trying to be super pushy, but you have to get your meat from Good Ranchers. If you want organic, high quality beef and chicken, if you want to support American farmers, if you want to make sure that you're patronizing a business whose owners are good people and a good family that you really want to support, then there's no reason for you not to go to GoodRanchers.com and get your organic, high-quality beef and chicken. It really does make your life so much easier. You go online to GoodRanchers.com and you figure out which meat that you want and it delivers to your front door. Everything is individually wrapped. Everything is vacuum-sealed. You can even get pre-marinated chicken if you want and it's ready to grill as soon as you get it at your house. Or you can put some in uh in the freezer for future use. But we love Good Ranchers at our house. One of the main reasons is because all the meat is from American farms and that's not what you're getting from the vast majority of beef that you get at the grocery store. 80% of the beef that you buy at American grocery stores is actually imported from overseas. So if you care about that, if you want to support American farmers, then you need to support Good Ranchers because all their meat is from American farmers and it's super high quality, tastes really good. I do not tell you that I use a product that I advertise on here if I don't. Um, We use the meat from Good Ranchers because we really like it and we really like the company. So I encourage you to do the same thing. You can get a one-time box or you can actually subscribe. They've got this family feast bundle. You can subscribe and get your box of meat every month. And when you do that, you actually save a lot of money. It's like 20%. brings the cost per meal down to $2.34. So there's really no reason not to do it. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. When you do that, you get $20 off your order. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie for $20 off your order. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie for $20 dollars off. You mentioned about separating out and then you talked about discrimination and trans people shouldn't be discriminated against. I also think it's important to kind of delineate certain kinds of discrimination because I think we would probably both agree that biological males, I don't like that phrase, but it seems like we have to for the sake of clarity, should be discriminated against when it comes to who we put in women's prisons and who we let into women's shelters and who we let into women's bathrooms and who we let into women's locker rooms. So that's where it kind of the language kind, kind of gets tricky because the fact of the matter is, is that some of us are advocating for, quote, discrimination. We're not advocating yeah. for, um, you know, mistreatment or to not have, you know, basic yeah. human rights. But we are talking about, OK, the right of a woman to be able to have a sex protected space should yeah. trump any sort of so-called right of a biological man to enter those spaces. And so it is a kind of discrimination that we're actually advocating for. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I use the word discrimination um, 
in a different sense there. And I, I agree that we need better, more flexible, more fine grained right. concepts because there's different kinds of discrimination and some are permissible in some contexts. So in the British legal system, we have a, a law which says that you, discrimination of the kind you mentioned is permissible where it is a proportionate means to a legitimate aim. And it seems it used to seem obvious to everyone that it was a legitimate aim to protect women from sexual potential sexual predators when they got undressed in changing rooms right. or when they were sleeping in dormitories or halls of residence or where they were seeking refuge from violent males in domestic violence shelters. So that used to be like absolutely uncontroversial that that was a good place to do sex discrimination and sports teams is another one like it, that's built into our equality act too unfortunately like in, in america too trans activism in the uk has been very successful in convincing people that really the important grounds for these discriminations is gender identity so now it should be that anyone with a female gender identity gets into the changing room or the prison or the I mean, in the right circumstances, or um, the sports team. Now, that's something that anyone could say they had. Though you don't, as I keep stressing, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to have had any surgery on your genitalia or anywhere right. else. You don't have to take in any hormones. You just it, so it's written into policies across the UK that the the legitimate permissible criteria of entry into the shower or the changing room or the facility is gender identity, yeah. not sex. Now that. Arguably is illegal, but it has yet to be tested. Um, right. And we have a strong lobbying group saying, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. That's what it always was. Right. There was a story out of um, California here about um, a group of girls at a, at a public sports facility who walked into a locker room where there were kind of these uh, open showers and there was a man and they're taking a shower and they were obviously traumatized. They were 17 year old girls. They told their parents, the parents complained. Well, the, the uh, local official said that they couldn't do anything because this grown man, just like, like we were saying earlier, just a man, no kind of changes whatsoever, said that he identifies as a woman. And so you can already kind of see the tangible consequences of this kind of thing. What we would have considered even five years ago, sexual harassment or sexual assault, of young girls is now being normalized as something that we just all need to accept. And mm -hmm. my bit of optimism is that ultimately people won't stand for that kind of thing, that they will risk being called a quote transphobe or a turf or a bigot for the sake of their daughters and for the sake of protection mm -hmm. of their wives and friends and sisters. Um, that's, that's my hope. Maybe I'm, I'm too hopeful in these crazy times, but I do think that well, this issue is tipping people over the edge. Well, I mean, there's been quite a few cases in the UK. There's been a notorious case of um, a convicted rapist and pedophile being put in a female prison and then sexually assaulting pris female prisoners. Now, female prisoners are some of the most vulnerable population. Most right. of them are in there for petty crime. A, a large proportion have been in the social care system, um, were homeless at the time they went in. And um, the thought that we are putting sexual offenders in female prisons because they say they are female, just again, it's, it's one of those ones where you just kind of spin out. Right. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that sort of case will push people over the edge. But one, for that to happen, there's two things. One, for that to happen, it has to be talked about in 
bigger circles than the conservative ones in which it's being talked about. Right. Because um, we all need to hear about this. We all have an interest in it. But the other thing I'm really worried about is some kind of backlash because I don't think, I think trans people should be protected in law as, as in they shouldn't be fired for being trans. I think that gay people should also be protected in law um, in various ways. And I'm worried that this um, overreach on behalf of LGBT organizations this crazy overreach is going to result in some kind of backlash against the um, gay people too and trans people who just want to get on with their lives, you know, transsexuals who've been um, living as the other sex for years without any problem and without making any huge demands on people around them. You know, that's, those are the people that are going to suffer as well. Well, I think that the fact that you and I, and I've talked to many other people who identify as gay or identify as feminist or identify on the left, that a lot of people who identify as those categories on my podcast, I am a conservative, traditional Christian. The fact that we find these kind of strange bedfellows, we find ourselves linking arms with people who on other subjects we might not link arms with and we might not agree with. I think that that actually bodes very well. That's not to say there isn't a concern of some kind of backlash, of course, but I do see, you know, not just when it comes to this, but when it comes to a lot of the um, what people feel like is a totalitarian movement coming from the left. And I know that's not exclusive to leftism, but a lot of people feel that way. I see atheists and and Christians and agnostics and gay people and straight people and conservatives and some liberals coming together and kind of pushing back against what we see as insanity. And so I think that the fact that there is kind of this, uh, there's a, an alliance of a variety of backgrounds and political stripes, I think mm-hmm. actually could hopefully push back against any sort of, you know, unintended consequence to mm-hmm. say no to the, you know, uh, insane parts of the trans activist movement. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, I certainly see that that is bound to happen. It's not, it's, it's completely predictable that a vast range of people from a vast range of backgrounds and interests and religious commitments or atheist commitments or whatever will have an interest in maintaining that there are males and females <laughs> in the world. You know, I mean, who wouldn't? It's, it's crazy that this ever happened. So, yeah, um, yeah there's going to be very unusual alliances. I mean, personally speaking, I am tired of uh, the purity spirals that happen on the left, and I'm tired of identity politics. So I can identify myself as, you know, economically left, but not necessarily culturally left. I think there's so, yeah. an, another interesting feature of this that there's like a range. I think the left and the right are becoming. Um, no, not everyone fits so cleanly between those two things now because there's, um, I mean, this is a different conversation, but obviously there's sort of cultural left and then there's economic left and you don't have to be on, on the same side in both mm-hmm. those cases. So, And I think um, conservatives in the United States, there was this kind of scatter plot of 2016 voters that said where the vast majority of people who identify as conservatives are is they're conservative economically and they're conservative socially, but there are far more people who are conservative socially and culturally and mm-hmm. are okay with some economic leftism and economic populism than there mm-hmm. are people who are socially liberal and economically conservative. And we are not really well represented by 
the people who are in charge and the elites, because that kind of social liberalism, well, I'm just not really going to speak up about this whole gender thing or any of these cultural movements, but capitalism, libertarianism, that's actually not in line with the majority of Mm -hmm. conservative Americans. And so I think what you're speaking of is absolutely true as far as the population goes. I just don't think that's represented, at least here in the United States, by the Mm -hmm. people who are making decisions. And that, you know, that does kind of concern me, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've talked a lot about the influence of the left, but we can, and I don't know where you would put libertarians, actually, but I would, you know, I think of libertarians as more on the right than on the left. And um, there's a strong kind of libertarian influence in transactivism. There is a kind of, um, you know, let everybody radically be who they want to be, no matter as long as, and then they say as long as they're not harming anyone else, obviously, then you can downplay all sorts of different kinds of harms, particularly when it comes to women. So, um, I think I'd like to see a rejection of that. I think that the free market, like I explained, I think has a big role to play in this too. It's like monetizing uh, dysphoria. It's monetizing people's uncomfortableness with themselves and particularly teenagers. And and so that's something I think should be reined in by the right. Um, yeah. So there's a lot, there's something for everyone to work on. <laughs> well, yes. And I think the right, a lot of people on the right and the left could possibly agree with the growth of corporate power, which has been um, exacerbated in the United States by mostly Republicans giving disproportionate tax breaks and deregulation to these corporations, making them grow and grow and grow to where we have the, almost this corporate oligarchy who is pushing things like gender identity down our throats. And hopefully the right and the left could kind of agree that, okay, we've given these big corporations too much power. There's no need for us to continue giving tax cuts to corporations at the expense of the working and middle class. And so you do kind of hope that that sort of, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I should say populism, but a little bit of economic populism could bring people together in that way and at least say, okay, we've given these entities too much power. And I think the right is only now waking up to the dangers of corporate power. Yeah. I mean, it's an elite. And uh, I think there are several elites involved in this particular nightmare. (laughs) You know, there is a a kind of LGBT elite that that have gained um, enormous status through hard fought, laudable battles on behalf of gay people, but are now you know, looking for new projects. And then there is the sort of, I would say, a kind of male-led indifference to the effect on women's rights um, because they just don't care as much about it. And then there is um, the money men. And then there's the left, which is a very masculine, uh, chauvinist place as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's all sorts of elites yeah. going on here. And I think um, the ordinary people um, oh, yeah. And the academic elites, of course. <laughs> and I speak as an academic, you know, a fully yeah. paid member of the academic elites, but I completely recognize their role in this and how ordinary people are the people that are going to suffer. Yeah. Um, it's not, you so say, it's not the, you know, the middle class academic um, who writes books about how we should have full surrogacy now right. <laughs> or who is going to pay the cost of um, their, you know, homeless hostel being uh suddenly suddenly having to be pushed into the presence of a of a of a male in their in a homeless hostel or you know they don't have as much reliance on public services it's there that it's going to affect people most <laughs> 
Okay, guys, if you are looking for a way to save money, one of the ways that you might be able to do that is by saving money on your insurance. And Gabby exists to make sure that you do. That is Gabby, G-A-B-I. It is the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not ballpark guesses. All you have to do is go to Gabby.com. You use your current policy to find a better policy. So it compares your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, travelers all in one place. You use your current insurance information to get started. It's free and they only show policies that are the same or better than your current coverage. Many of them are actually at a lower price. And so you really have nothing to lose. It doesn't cost at all to compare uh, the different coverage options. And if they don't find a better option for you, then you can rest assured knowing that you are saving as much money as possible with the current plan that you have. But there's a very good possibility that you are paying too much for your coverage. And so Try to save as much money as you can by using Gabby and comparing your coverage now. Go to Gabby.com slash relatable. That's Gabby, G-A-B-I dot com slash relatable. That's Gabby.com slash relatable. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. And I do only have one quick question to to ask you, but um, when you say middle class, see, I typically think of this as most elite movements like critical theory, like critical race theory, like gender identity being coming from the upper class and being a war on the middle class. And I think a war. that's just a British, a British, right. uh, my, my problem translation. So middle class, I mean, upper middle class as opposed yeah. to working class. Okay. So, so you, uh, we kind of use working. Wars, but, right. Yes, we kind of use working class and middle class interchangeably here. Obviously, there's like a, a wide range. And so I just wanted to clarify that for people, yeah. uh, for people listening. And it's also interesting how we kind of view economic classes in the United States. Like we might see, you know, a New York Times reporter who only makes $60,000 a year as part of the elites, but she's not necessarily she's not making as much money as the person who lives in, you know, Middletown, Kansas, who's making $100,000 a year, but is a plumber. Like our view of what is elite and what is not is, um, and what is working classes and what is not, is not necessarily tied to income in the United States. So it does just seem like it's these elites, whether they're rich or not, pushing mm -hmm. it down um, on, I don't know if the right word is just regular people, <laughs> just kind of working people. But I think essentially we agree. Um, yeah, sorry, we agree yes, where I it's, should have clarified oh, no. that. No, 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 no. Um, I, I, we agree, though, on the premise. Speaking of people in charge and elites, um, you have been, you've received some pushback or a lot of pushback. And I don't know what any of this means. So you might have to clarify for us. Um, you were made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> Uh, in the 2021 New Year honors list for services to higher education. So I don't know what that means, but apparently a lot of people were mad that you uh, earned this accolade. Yeah, I didn't know what it mean, meant either when I got it. Um, so, yeah, that's going to I very unexpectedly. So I've been talking about this for a while and I've been also talking about the impact on academic freedom and freedom of speech. Um, and I've been trying to draw attention to the fact that um, academics who feel like me are not 
free to discuss this in the same way as other academics. We have faced all these extra obstacles. We can't publish our work. We can't give talks without them being protested or no platformed. Uh, there's many open letters and petitions against me and all sorts of things have happened to me. So I've been trying to draw attention to that. Um, then very unexpectedly, I got an honor um, in our honors list. I don't know if you have a kind of presidential honor type thing, but ours is from the queen, although she obviously has nothing to do with it really. Um, but there's a kind of committee that looks at nominations. And I got this honor um, called an OBE, um, very unexpectedly. And yes, that really enraged people who hate me even further. <laughs> so uh, at that point, 600 philosophers, um, many of whom were in the in the US actually, um, wrote an open letter about me. You know, they what they accuse me of is every time is transphobia. This they assume that yeah. I must hate trans people. Um, that I must. What do they accuse me of? Propping up the patriarchy. Right. Uh, various other ridiculous things. Uh, oh yeah, stopping stopping trans people from having life life saving surgeries. Me personally. Yeah. Um, and so on. You know, very hyperbolic rhetorical. It turns out they didn't even know what I actually thought because they accused me of something in the letter that turns out I didn't think. Right. And I have actually publicly said I don't think. Yeah. So. You know, that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. You're always told, not you personally, but maybe you personally, if you have any objection to this on a philosophical or political level, um, you're told obviously that you hate trans people personally, which is not true for you or for me, that you don't think that they should have rights. And I think the most egregious thing that I hear so often from them is that you have blood on your hands, like the suicides of trans people is on yeah. your hands if you don't agree with trans activism. Yeah. And that scares a lot of people from speaking out. They see pushback that you got and you're mm -hmm. in the academic field. You have all of these credentials and obviously you're very thoughtful about how you approach it. And you're progressive in a lot of ways too. And you're even getting that pushback. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of people intimidated. Can you give mm -hmm. some people some hope and encouragement? They want to speak up, but they don't know what to do. And maybe they're scared. Um, yes. I mean, I just want to say about the suicide rhetoric. Um, it, it's completely irresponsible and um it's also propaganda because uh there isn't particularly good evidence i mean there isn't any evidence that the um i don't know what the claim would be the the, the thing is that trans activists use the threat of suicide to say that parents should accept their children's transitions or in a, in britain um a trans activist organization called mermaids which lobbies on behalf of children used again this rhetoric about the potential for suicides to say that um, children should be given puberty blockers quicker you know it's just used all the time as a yeah. tool to get certain political demands met and um, it's not evidence-based so and also the other thing is it's re suicide is very contagious um, suicide talk tends yeah. to produce more suicide so it's completely irresponsible to talk as if it was a simple causal story and uh, when when suicide does occur tragically there's numerous factors usually it's 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 connected to all sorts of complicated background stories it couldn't just be one thing right anyway could i give people hope um well i've got a lot of solidarity and friendship out of um this because i've met many amazing people who are um worried about this too so that's i think you know you, that was a definite bonus for me I also feel incredibly relieved 
I can say what I think. Um, and people should not underestimate that, particularly academics, if anyone's watching. I mean, your job is to do this stuff. And if you can't do it, who can? So you will feel an enormous sense of relief to be able to say what you think. Um, and now I've written a book which uh, hopefully explains in more detail why there, we don't have to accept the choice that we've been given between you must be transphobic um, or you must accept trans activism. Those are the two choices made that we're told are available to us, but that's not true. We could think of creative ways to protect trans people through law and maybe even to grant, you know, to develop new spaces where they feel safe um, if needs be. You know, there's all sorts of creative stories we can, uh, conversations we can have that don't involve these black and white, aggressively asserted binaries um, that we're being forced to accept. Yes. And I really encourage people to get your book. I think that, you know, knowledge is power and people educating themselves and realizing that there is someone um, like you who is speaking out against this stuff, even amidst a lot of pushback and a lot of hate. I think that courage begets courage in itself. Mm -hmm. And people need to realize that about themselves as well, mm -hmm. that their own courage and their own willingness to speak up despite pushback gives courage to other people. And that kind of contagion is something that we desperately need. Um, mm -hmm. People can get your book, I'm guessing on Amazon, but we try not to direct people towards yeah, Amazon quite as much. Is there anywhere else they can get your book? Um, well, the situation in America is a bit complicated because I um, couldn't get an American deal, funnily enough, because no no American publisher wants to touch it. So I've got a British publisher, Little Brown, and they are making the ebook available on the launch date, which is May the 6th. Okay. And then they hope that hardback will be available later, some at some point later. So okay. you can get it as an ebook. I'm afraid you might have to get that through Amazon. I don't know, to be honest. Okay. There's another one there. That's but, okay. <laughs> um, or you can order it from the UK. Um, through any one of multiple um, outlets. So you just go to Little Brown and look for me and they've got links to all the places you can order it. Okay, great. Well, we'll put that link in the description to this podcast episode so people can order it. It's called Material Girls, correct? Mm-hmm. Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. But it's not just for feminists. It's basically for right. humans. <laughs> right, right. And it comes out May 5th. Awesome. Well, I know people are going to gain a lot, a lot of insight and a lot of encouragement for that uh, from that. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. I'm sure everyone can follow you on social media. Do you have a website? I do, KathleenStock.com. And I am DocStock with uh, an extra K on the end on Twitter, where you can find me arguing with people. <laughs> as Quite we regular. all do, as we all do on Twitter. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ali. Thanks for having me.